Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me this week, senior analysts Jason Moser and Ron Gross. Good to see you, as always, gentlemen. Hey, hey, hey. Chris. We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. We've got the latest on the healthcare industry. And as always, we've got a couple of stocks on our radar. But we begin with software eating the world. Shares of Adobe hit a new all-time high on Friday after second quarter profits and revenue came in higher than Wall Street was expecting. The software company also upped their guidance for the current quarter. Jason, there is a lot to like with Adobe. What stood out to you? Oh, Chris, I am just such a happy shareholder. <laughs> this was just a lovely quarter, it seems, on on all counts. Um, yeah, Adobe, it's so interesting. This, this To me, this is one that just hides in plain sight. Uh, a lot of people maybe don't own it. They feel like it's too big, or maybe they feel like they're too late. Well, it's not too big, and you're not too late. Uh, this, is, this is one you want to have on your radar. Ubiquitous digital media company utilizing a subscription model. Uh, subscription revenue, basically 90% of the business with gross margins to boot. I mean, there are just a lot of good things going on with this business. And when you look at the numbers, uh, I, I think that really tells the tale for the quarter. I mean, they brought in $3.84 billion in revenue. That was Growth of 23% from a year ago in non GAAP earnings per share, $3.03. Uh, the digital media segment, which is the largest segment of the business, that grew 25% from a year ago. And they exited the quarter actually with $11.2 billion of digital media annualized recurring revenue. And so that just gives you a little bit of an idea of what is coming, right? I mean, this is just it's a company that continues uh, just to. to Keep those those partnerships, those relationships with its customers because of all of this great software uh, that it produces. Uh, one of the more interesting parts of the business, smaller part of the business, but we talk a lot about DocuSign on the show. Adobe uh, has their document cloud that brought in four hundred seventy million dollars uh, in revenue. That was thirty percent growth from a year ago. New uh, Adobe Sign customers doubled from a year ago. So just it, it's clear that they are keeping their customers. They're bringing more customers in, and, and they're really excited about this recovery in the economy. Uh, Adobe's tools are used by so many in, in so many different spaces. E-commerce is no exception, and, and they really they lobbed out some pretty impressive projections there in regard to e-commerce. They see e-commerce spending uh, it's projected to be 4.2 trillion dollars globally this year, going to reach 1 trillion dollars in the U.S. alone in 2022. Uh, I mean, that is a really good sign for Adobe because a lot of those customers in e-commerce are using those digital media tools to, to build and grow their businesses. So, uh, yeah, like you said, a lot to like, and, and uh, it feels like, you know, if you're a shareholder here, hang on to those shares. Kroger's first quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected. The grocery chain also raised guidance for the full fiscal year. And despite all that goodness, Ron, <laughs> shares of Kroger were actually flat this week. You know, it was it was a solid report. It was not stellar. The the high point, as you point out, was that they increased guidance. But if you, if you just drill down a little bit, you, it's some mediocrity there. Total sales were flat. If you exclude fuel sales, they were actually down four um, percent. Now sales were up fourteen point nine percent if you compare it to two years ago. And they give us this metric as so many other retailers have been because of COVID. Year-over-year uh, -year comparisons are rough this time around, um, so it's nice to have a more normalized year 2019 to compare to. So it looks pretty good. Sales up almost 15% compared to that. 
investments in digital paying off, uh, you know, obviously crucial um, in this day and age uh, to invest in your digital experience. Sales there were up 16%. They expanded to over 2,200 pickup locations, almost 2,500 delivery locations, which cover 98% of Kroger households. Gross margins narrowed a bit. That's on the weaker sales, or higher shrink. Shoplifting is shrink is another word for shoplifting and other losses. Uh, and there were some COVID-related expenses in there as well that impacted margins. So when you boil it all down and you exclude some pension-related charges, adjusted EPS was actually down slightly. Compare it to 2019 again, though, you had an up 29%. Not too shabby. Um, for a supermarket company. And they said, as we said, they raised full year guidance, which was also nice to see. 2,800 retail stores right now, uh, Harris Teeter being my favorite, thank you. Uh, only trading at 13 times. Um, these companies don't typically trade at high multiples, but that's not expensive. And they just approved a new $1 billion share repurchase program. Uh, real quick, uh, the technical term shrink. Does that include things other than shoplifting? It too? does. It does. <laughs> it could be. It could be bookkeeping discrepancies, accounting things. Shoplifting is is a big part of it. Uh, other reasons that you would not be able to account for merchandise, um, you know, falls off the back of a truck, for example. Um, so not just shoplifting. The Honest Company issued its first report as a public company. The consumer goods business founded by actress Jessica Alba posted revenue that was higher than expected. But shares of Honest Company falling this week and down 30% from its IPO just last month, Jason. Yeah, I wouldn't worry too much about that. I think this was a very respectable introduction to the public markets. A very good, a very good first earnings earnings release here. And and when you look at this business, I mean, it really does. It feels like this is the direction in which the world wants to head. So there is a long term trend in play here that could work out nicely over time. A company that's very focused on ESG and sustainability. Um, I, I think a big question for a business like this it really boils down to pricing. Oftentimes, um, it's it's a little bit more expensive to make this stuff right now in the near. Term. Now, as, as time goes on, those costs will come down. And, and I think a company like The Honest Company has uh, some brand equity that could play out in its favor. They do have to be careful with that, though. But when you look at the numbers, uh, revenue up 12%. From a year ago, they saw little gross margin pressure there, just primarily due to input costs. Um, and there's some expenses there with additional marketing spend and some IPO costs. Uh, but all in all, they, they view their total uh, addressable market here for their categories of diapers and wipes and skin and personal care and household products. They, they see a total uh, market opportunity there around $130 billion, with about $17 billion representing that clean and natural market within those categories. And that's really the primary focus of the Honest Company. Um, so, so I, I think again, a very respectable introduction to the public markets. Uh, they should feel good about where they're headed. I think now it's just a matter of of making those sales. And as long as they continue to establish and grow relationships like they're doing with Target, uh, they expanded the presence there. Target from 900 stores to 1,200 stores. Hey, I mean, if you've been listening to this show and you listen to Ron talk about Target, <laughs> you know that Target's a nice place for these folks to be. Shares of Lennar up more than seven percent this week after the home builder's second quarter profits came in higher than expected. 
Ron, given what's happening to home prices lately, any chance the good people at Lennar could, you know, build homes a little more quickly? <laughs> if, it, if it wasn't for some raw material prices and some labor shortages, maybe. But boy, real estate is on fire all over the place. Strong quarter, revenue here up 22%. That's due to a 14% increase in deliveries, a 6% increase in average sale price, which, as we say, is a result of the tight supply of homes in the U.S. There is no inventory for homes right now. Um, they had a nice increase in margin in their mortgage business and an increase in volume and margin in their title business. So that helped results. Gross margin of 26.1% was the highest second quarter margin in the company's history. That was driven by a higher than expected sales price per home delivered of $414,000, reflecting higher prices in most markets, as we all see. And that was partially offset by higher land and construction costs. New orders up 32%. Now, new construction has been constrained due to the pandemic, tight labor market, shortage of lumber, as we saw lumber prices skyrocket. That's come down a bit recently, but lumber um, prices very, very high. Other raw materials and commodity prices high as well, as we talk about inflation in so many different industries. But they still put up great numbers, net income excluding some non-operating charges, and a gain on the sale of their solar business was up 79%, really strong. Guidance was strong for home deliveries and gross margins in the third quarter. Um, they repurchased a million shares of common stock. Things are, are going quite well as a result of this real estate market that is on fire. Are we going to have to wait three more months to their next earnings report to get an update on how construction is going? Because it seems like heading into the summer months, one scenario is we get updated guidance from Lennar a month from now. Yeah, that, that certainly could happen. It's very hard to predict, but we'll have other more macro-related indicators about how construction, uh, housing starts, um, real estate in general are looking, and we'll be able to then project into these individual companies. How do you separate a value play from a value trap? We'll discuss that after the break, so stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Jason Moser and Ron Gross. Lazy Boy ended the fiscal year with a strong fourth quarter report. Profits and revenue were both solidly higher than Wall Street was expecting, yet shares of Lazy Boy falling more than 15% this week. What's going on, Ron? Yeah, quarter was fine, uh, you know, benefiting from the economy reopening. But I think it's the outlook primarily that worried investors, and, and we can get into that as we I take you through the quarter. Uh, sales reaching a record high, up forty-one percent. So so far so good. Obviously, last year impacted by the pandemic. This year, sales were driven by the reopening of stores. They had some increased production capacity, uh, strong performance by their company-owned stores. And Joybird, which is their online furniture subsidiary, also had continued growth and were, were pro was actually profitable. They had same-store sales increase of 100%. But if we go back to 2019, as we discussed earlier, they were up only, I say only, 29%. That's pretty strong still. Um, so it's good to see that same-store sales number. Uh, sales in the wholesale segment was up 40%. Retail segment, 39%. Very consistent there. They had operating margins that widened a bit. And adjusted earnings per share were actually up 78%. So you say, well, what's the problem here? Why would the stock sell off? Well, that's when you get into some of the guidance. All business units are experiencing record demand. That's great. Backlog is at record levels. That is good, but only if you can fill those orders. And management expects ongoing global supply chain disruptions. 
headwinds related to raw materials and freight costs to make filling that backlog somewhat difficult. They expect a temporary negative impact to profit margins due to higher raw material prices. They're going to offset that with some price increases. We see lots of retailers and even restaurant companies doing that as well. So that, I think, is what investors were focused on. I think that's fair because the past is the past. We have to look to the future when we think about our investments. Um, and so perhaps it rightly sold off. The stock is only trading at 12 times. That's fine. It's not some huge growth company. It's not a technology company. It's a furniture, relatively lower end furniture retailer. Um, certainly not an expensive stock, but you know it, it's trading probably right around where it should be. Yeah, but Ron, on last week's show, we talked about RH Holdings, parent company of Restoration Hardware. They're in the same line of work as Lazy Boy, and I don't remember them saying they were facing any of these problems to this degree. RH is, is doing a stellar job of, in terms of sourcing, in terms of their galleries, in terms of their loyalty program. Um, they're obviously a much higher price point as well, which I think has benefited um, their results. Um, so, yeah, two different stories. Exciting week at Lordstown Motors. The electric truck startup is looking for new management because CEO Steve Burns and CFO Julio Rodriguez resigned on the same day. Shares of Lordstown down 10%. Jason, I'm kind of surprised it's not down more than that. Yeah, exciting maybe for the financial media, right? Because we get to talk about this. I'd imagine if you're an investor in Lordstown, excited maybe isn't really the word. <laughs> um, it, it, man, it really feels like a lot of unforced errors here. Uh, but but I think it's also a very good example of the dangers that SPACs can pre pre present. I mean, it's not to lump them all together by any means. I mean, there there are plenty of great SPACs out there that, that are working working out well. But they're by their very nature. I mean, they're just they're they're more story stocks. They come to the market far earlier in their lives. Is going concerned, so you you need to make sure there's some stake behind that sizzle, Chris. And it looks like with Lordstown, there might not be uh, yet, at least. And I mean, it was really interesting to see this story develop through the week because on Tuesday, which was a day after the CEO and the CFO resigned, uh, the president of the company told reporters that they the company had enough cash on hand to get through next May and enough binding orders to keep production going through the end of next year. Well, then fast forward to Thursday, where the company uh, files an 8K in order to clar clarify the president's comments because they're like, hey, you know, listen, what this is, there's some purchase agreements that provide us with, with some uh, signals of demand, but that they actually have no binding purchase orders or commitments from customers. So, uh, you know, I don't know if it's semantics, I don't know if the president was trying to paint a little bit of a better picture than, than, than is really the case, but the bottom line is, is, is that leadership clearly, um, it, it, they're not all on the same page. And, and when you have a business like this that is essentially pre-revenue, and they are facing monumental competition. I mean, not only from a company like Tesla, which is which is clearly the leader in the, in the EV space, but but now you've got GM and Ford making all of these commitments to to invest in in EVs as well, spending billions upon billions of dollars to do so. It just goes to show you really how how big how steep of an uphill climb it really is for Lordstown. Um, it, based on what we've seen with management to this point, I, I just this is one I think you have to steer clear of. Just as we don't want to paint all SPACs with the same brush, we don't want to paint all 8Ks with the same brush. But <laughs> if you're filing an 8K to basically say, the president of our company misspoke, that's a problem. That's a yeah. problem. For the kids at home, this is not how to run a public company. <laughs> our email address is radio at fool.com. 
And an email from Mike in Ohio who writes, I know The Motley Fool is typically more growth-focused, but as I get older, I'm starting to think about rotating into some value stocks. How do I spot a value trap? I've heard this term a lot, but I'm still a bit fuzzy on the subject. Do you have some general rules of thumb to look out for to ensure that you don't get stuck in a value trap? What do you think, Ron? Love the question. Right up my alley. Let's start with the definition of value trap first. In my opinion, it's an investment you make because you think the stock is undervalued, and that investment either doesn't make you the return you expected or you actually lose money. So, in my experience, in most cases, a value trap arises because you bought a stock of a company that was having trouble, it was theoretically cheap as a result, and you expect things to turn around. It's when things don't turn around that a value investment becomes a value trap. And you keep holding on, hoping things will turn, believing things will turn, and it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse, eventually leading to what we call a permanent loss of capital. You lose money. The easiest way to avoid most value traps is to only buy strong companies that are executing well versus troubled companies that look cheap that you think will rebound. Now, that certainly is a strategy employed by value investors around the globe, including myself in a former career. Uh, but you've got to be really careful that you're picking companies that are temporarily impaired rather than permanently impaired. And that's not the easiest thing to do when researching and analyzing a company. You're going to get it wrong a fair amount of times. That's going to lead to that permanent loss of capital, which will impact your returns in a severe way. And even in the worst of cases, could lead to you owning some companies that end up filing bankruptcy. I've had a couple of those, to be honest, and that really will kill your returns. So buy strong companies. Don't worry about turnarounds or companies that are failing, and you'll be able to avoid value traps. Well, and I'll just try and read Mike's mind a little bit with his question. Um, it seems like at least part of what's underlying it is uh, he's moving into uh, you know not he's moving out of growth mode as an investor and more into protect your wealth mode. And it would seem as though some of the you know companies that we typically describe as blue chip stocks like Johnson and Johnson might be a better fit than oh I'm I'm looking for something that's cheap. Yes, because value investments that are troubled and look cheap are actually sometimes more risky um, than you would ever think. They're not really what we think of as mature, stable companies. Look at the uh, S&P 500 dividend aristocrats. Look at the blue chip stocks out there that have very, very long track records of putting up great results. They're not going to knock the cover off the ball, but you're not taking on that risk, so you shouldn't expect them to knock the cover off the ball. They'll just earn you nice rates of return year after year after year with less risk. Jason Moser, Ron Gross, guys, we'll see you later in the show. Up next, a closer look at the healthcare sector with industry veteran Keith Spites. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Recently on this show, we've talked a lot about the Great Reopening here in the United States. But let's face it, the Great Reopening does not happen without COVID vaccines from Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson. Here to talk about that and more is Keith Spites. He's a healthcare technology consultant, and for the past decade, he's been a contributing writer at The Motley Fool, focusing on, what else? The healthcare industry. Keith, thanks for being here. Good to be here, Chris. 
Um, let's start with the vaccine. Um, I want to go big picture to start. Where, where are we now as you look at these three businesses, the vaccine distribution across the United States and around the world? Yeah, so Chris, I mean, the news in the United States is awesome. Uh, you know, we're in a great position thanks to the vaccines that you've mentioned Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson and Johnson. They've really helped the United States largely, not completely, but largely turn the corner in the fight against COVID-19. You know, you mentioned the reopening of the economy. That's what we're seeing right now. We're seeing vaccines make the difference. I saw uh, AMC Entertainment CEO, you know, AMC is one of the big meme stocks right now. AMC CEO was saying he watches every day, watches to see what's going on with vaccine news because vaccines are the key, uh, certainly for his company, but for a lot of other companies, um, you know, throughout the US and the world. So here at home, you know, things are really going exceptionally well. But in other parts of the world, the news isn't so great. And especially in countries like India, it's just, uh, you know, they, they really are facing some, some really serious challenges with COVID-19. So, when this started to break, sort of this cascading uh, number of announcements from these three companies, for a good stretch of time there, they were essentially grouped together. And uh, over the past, let's call it six weeks or so, um, it really seems to be that Johnson and Johnson has sort of broken off from the other two. And now you hear a lot of talk about Moderna's vaccine and Pfizer's vaccine in the same breath. Johnson and Johnson, they hit the pause button. Um, How significant is that in terms of vaccine distribution? And how significant is it? For Johnson and Johnson as a company, yeah, I think there, you know, there are two answers there, Chris. Uh, in terms of how significant is it for vaccine distribution, it does make a big difference because, you know, the uh, the U.S. was uh, hoping to be able to be able to distribute 100 million of J and J's vaccines, and um, Johnson and Johnson really not through any fault of its own. It was really a, a contractor that had some serious manufacturing issues that have really caused the problems for Johnson and Johnson and as a result i think the latest uh, numbers that i've seen only about 5% of vaccines given to americans were johnson and johnson's vaccine you know that's remarkably low considering it's the only single dose vaccine that's won authorization and you know you would think well you know a lot of people would really be attracted to that that convenience, uh, but those issues have have caused that rate to be exceptionally low. But now, in terms of the question of how does this impact Johnson Johnson, the the real answer there is not very much. Uh, first of all, Johnson Johnson is selling this vaccine at cost during the pandemic, so it's it's making some revenue but no profits, and so it's not impacting J and J's bottom line at all with some of the problems that it's faced. The other thing is Johnson & Johnson is the biggest healthcare company on the planet. And any one product just isn't going to move the needle tremendously for Johnson & Johnson. I mean, I think J&J has over 200 separate companies that is part of the J&J empire. And so the vaccine, you know, had it been as successful as anticipated, you know, would have been great for Johnson & Johnson, at least on the top line, but it's still just a, you know, just a small, small part of this company's business. Uh, last question, and then we'll move off of COVID-19. 
you look at shares of Johnson and Johnson and Pfizer, for that matter. They're up about twenty-five percent or so over the past year. Uh, everything you said about Johnson and Johnson, the size of the company, how many you know, no one thing is going to move the lever for that business and therefore for that stock. But I am curious if, on the flip side, you are surprised at the fact that shares of Moderna have more than tripled over the past year, or do you look at that and say, you know what, it's a much smaller business? That makes sense to me. Yeah, actually, uh, it does make sense to me. I, I think that uh, smaller companies, smaller stocks in general, not just in the healthcare space, in any industry, smaller stocks are going to move more on good news. And that's what we've seen with Moderna, particularly. Uh, we've also seen it with other companies uh, that are on the horizon. Novavax, for example, was a huge, huge winner in 2020, particularly. Um, you know, a company like Pfizer, I would have expected Pfizer's stock to move more than it has. I, I still personally view Pfizer as a little underappreciated because of the contributions that it, that it's made. But again, uh, Pfizer, like Johnson Johnson, has a lot of other products and a lot of other dynamics that come into play when you look at its stock movement. And I think um, investors are looking at some of the challenges that Pfizer faces and could face several years from now with some of its uh, top drugs losing patent exclusivity. And so I think they're factoring all that in. But you know, I think um, Pfizer is a stock that probably could have moved more than it has so far. All right, let's move off of this and talk about treatment for another health challenge, and that is Alzheimer's. Shares of Biogen are up 40% in the month of June because the FDA approved Biogen's drug to treat Alzheimer's. This is the first medication aimed at slowing cognitive decline for people with Alzheimer's that regulators have approved. And yet, it is not without controversy. Three members of the FDA advisory panel resigned over the decision. Um, there are a couple of threads to get to here, but I guess my first question is, what is going on here? Is there, like, was this a mistake to greenlight this treatment? Well, uh, Chris, uh, I, I call this nearly a biotech soap opera. Uh, you know, you could you could even bring in Greek mythology here. First of all, Biogen's drug is like the mythical phoenix. It it literally rose from the ashes. I mean, this was a drug that not all that long ago had been relegated to the trash heap after seemingly failing late stage clinical studies. Biogen later came back and did some further analysis and they analysis and they said hey you know we we actually see that there's a potential here and they they pursued that and then ultimately did file for FDA approval and ultimately won but you're right it's extremely extremely controversial the FDA's advisory committee that was convened to review the data came back and voted 10 against recommending approval one abstention. No member of that committee voted in favor of this drug being approved. Uh, they thought that another clinical study needed to be conducted to to establish that the drug was actually effective. And so, and and not even just that, several members of the committee wrote op-eds publicly urging the FDA not to go ahead and approve this drug. And the FDA did it anyway. And it, so it's extremely controversial. I mean, where does this go from here? Because part of me hears what you're saying and thinks, if those people are right, if this doesn't deserve approval, then it's essentially setting up patients and their families for huge disappointments. 
It very well could. And I think that's the sad thing about this, Chris. Uh, I personally, uh, I had a, a grandparent who had Alzheimer's disease before she passed away. And, you know, we really need an effective treatment. And it would be a shame if, as some of the experts believe, this drug really doesn't work. Now, I hope it does. I hope, uh, you know, Biogen does have to conduct another clinical study. Uh, that was part of the accelerated approval uh, decision. And so I hope it comes out and, and this drug actually does work. But if you look at the data, it's it's really a toss of the coin, I think, as to whether or not it's actually effective or not. In terms of timing, is the next trial by Biogen is going to be doing, is that later this year? Is it sometime in 2022? The confirmatory study will take years to conduct. Uh, it's likely that we won't know the results of that study possibly eight or nine years from now. Well, let's close on a, a much more short-term note here. What? Look, this is an industry you follow every single day. Uh, it's an industry um, I have only passing familiarity with. Um, what are a couple of things that you think uh, are going to be worth watching in the healthcare industry in the second half of 2021? Yeah, Chris, I think the biggest story by far will be coronavirus variants. What happens? Um, and, you know, you've got, uh, we already had the uh, UK variant, we've got the Brazilian variant, but the really concerning one right now is the Delta variant that was identified in India. And, uh, you know, it, it just remains to be seen what's going to happen there. You know, how effective will our current vaccines be against these variants? And, and there could be more variants emerge as well. Uh, how effective will they be? Will we need booster doses more, you know, sooner rather than later to provide additional protection against variants? Uh, how effective will some um, modified vaccines that both Pfizer and Moderna are working on targeting specific variants be? They're conducting clinical studies. This is a huge study, a huge uh, story, because it doesn't just impact the healthcare world, it impacts the entire world. You know, it, we've talked earlier about the economy reopening. If, you know, if there are really bad, dangerous variants emerge that vaccines aren't as effective against, that could change the dynamics of the global economy. You can read his articles on fool.com. You can follow him on Twitter. The guy knows his stuff. So if you want to know healthcare, you need to be following Keith Spites. Keith, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Chris. Good to be with you. Up next, Ron Gross and Jason Moser return with two stocks on their radar and one correction from last week's show. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here once again with Jason Moser and Ron Gross. Guys, on last week's show, we talked about the latest quarterly results from Casey's General Stores, as well as the acquisition of another convenience store chain that they had made. And we got several emails from alert listeners, <laughs> starting with James Brown in Nevada, who writes, 
In your discussion of Casey's General Stores, you mentioned that they had acquired Bucky's for $580 million and that they were, quote, big in Texas. In truth, Casey's acquired Bucky's from Nebraska, not the Bucky's from Texas. An acquisition of Bucky's from Texas would have been in the multi billion dollar range and would have come at the consternation of many a sad Texan. Uh, so that's on me because, Ron, when you did mention the Bucky's acquisition, I didn't realize that there's a Bucky's based in Nebraska. It's a division of Buchanan Energy. Yeah. I confused it with Bucky's, the one based in Texas, uh, which is where almost all of their locations are. Um, you know, and and I I blame the Buckies in Texas, and here's why, <laughs> because we've talked about Cisco Systems, yes, you know the networking company, and Cisco, the wholesale food service distribution company, and they've got names that sound exactly the same, but they're in completely different industries. The Buckies in Nebraska came first; it was established first. I feel like the one in Texas should have picked a different name. That's fair, but I, thanks to James and others for, for pointing us out. We we make mistakes from time to time, and we're we're here to own up to them. Absolutely, we are nothing if not accountable. Keep us accountable. Drop us an email, radio at fool com. Next week, El Pollo Loco is trying out its newest innovation, drone delivery. The chicken restaurant chain will be testing what it calls door to backyard drone delivery with ten of its locations in Southern California. Jason, they say this could reduce delivery costs by up to 30%. And when you think about their concentration in California, that is not an insignificant sum of money they could be saving. I absolutely believe it could save those costs. Uh, as a consumer, I would jump all over this just to try it, just to witness what happens. <laughs> I mean, it would just be fascinating. I've got this itch to go trademark. Now, my Spanish is a little rusty, Chris, but I have an itch to go trademark El Pollo Volador, the flying chicken, because I Whoa. feel like, you know, <laughs> hey, that's where we're headed. You know, Kroger, which we discussed earlier today, has their own drone delivery pilot that's going on with a different company. So here we go. It's starting. We're going to see how this works out. I'm a little skeptical. Uh, I am as well. But the fact that you've got all these tests going on it makes me think that five, ten years from now, some of these businesses are going to make this work. And again, if any of the dozens of listeners in the Southern California area want to do some boots on the ground research, hit up their local. El Pollo Loco for some drone delivery. Let us know how it goes, because I am fascinated to see how this test goes for them. I'd love to see some video. And the thing that I noted in that piece that I still can't quite figure out why this is how it how it works, but they talk about lowering your meal down from 80 feet. That sounds dangerous. On a wire. To me. I mean, that's where I start thinking. Hmm. Maybe you could make that process a little bit because I envision the drone just touching down in your yes. backyard and letting Agreed. go and then taking back off. Yes. Uh, it does. It does feel like that. That 80 foot wire might add to the degree of difficulty. <laughs> uh, let's go to our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd. Before we get to the stocks on our radar, uh, if you were living in Southern California, you'd give this a shot, wouldn't you? Just to see the drone coming by your backyard. Chris, I would give it a shot in the sense that I would take a gun and shoot the drones down and then wow. go get people's food and eat it for myself. <laughs> That's hostile. Wow. Wow. Yeah. We always appreciate how straightforward Dan is. All right, let's get to the stocks on our radar. Jason Moser, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? 
Uh, yeah, taking a look at Corvo, ticker QRVO. It's a company in the radio frequency and semiconductor space, and they uh, provide one of the industry's broadest portfolios of products in that space. But one thing I'm primarily interested in with Corvo is its progress in ultra-wideband technology, UWB. It's a radio technology that moves large quantities of data over a wide-ranging scale of frequency bands with very low power for short distances. So, it delivers superior location accuracy, security, uh, latency, as we talk about 5G. Um, ultimately, U UWB gives our smartphones spatial awareness, right? It makes it, makes it so that smartphones know where, where the other smartphones are, basically. And as the Internet of Things rolls out and more things are connected, we need to know where all of these things are. We need that spatial awareness. Uh, so, with, with Corvo, I mean, they, they are pursuing that market. It's forecast to hit $2 billion by 2022, $2.7 billion by 2025. Dan? Question about Corvo? Yeah, sure, Chris. So, Jason, you know, we, we keep hearing about the semiconductor shortage out there right now. Corvo is a company that in March of 2020, in the uh, beginning of the pandemic, fell like the rest of the market, but since then has been on quite the tear. Like, how are they avoiding all the semiconductor problems that other companies are seeing right now? Well, they are a beneficiary of a large relationship with a little company called Apple. And for better or worse, they have about a third of their revenue tied to Apple right now. And, and that's a good thing right now, because Apple continues to innovate. They're pushing out some really uh, clever new devices, uh, particularly the new phones. So, I think as long as they're able to maintain that relationship with Apple, they, they should be given a little bit of a, of a benefit of the doubt, so to speak. Ron Gross, what are you looking at this week? I'm looking at GAN Limited, G-A-N, small cap stock, recent recommendation at The Motley Fool. They build and operate online casino and sports betting sites for customers. They're a toll booth company. They take a small cut of every dollar wagered on their customers' sites, customers like Wynn Resorts or non-casino companies like Churchill Downs and FanDuel. They also offer simulated gaming for casino and gaming customers. Penn National Gaming is a large customer in that segment. This looks interesting to me. Online betting is really starting to take off a growing industry. It was accelerated by the pandemic. Um, I don't know a ton about the evolving gaming laws, so I need to dig into that a bit. Also, FanDuel is a major percentage of revenue here, so there's a risk that I need to dig in with that as well. Dan, question about GAN Limited? You know what, Chris? I don't have a question, but I do have a gripe. So I don't watch a lot of uh, TV, but I do watch live sports, right? And it used to be that every other commercial was an insurance company commercial. Those companies have way <laughs> too much money. But now, now every other commercial is a sports book commercial. These companies have way too much money. They're spending way too much time putting commercials on my baseball games. Which stock do you want to bet on uh, here, Dan? Normally, I like stocks that rhyme with my name, Chris, but not this one. <laughs> not this one. No, I'm going to go with Corvo. Nice. I love it. Ron Sound Gross. logic. Sound logic. Jason Moser. Guys, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Chris. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Motley Fool Money. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.